morning. So I am speaking today. Uh, those were my parents, Pastor Scott and Joy. They both went out of town recently to celebrate Pastor Joy's birthday. And so I am speaking so that they can have a Sabbath. Because when you're in ministry, Sundays aren't really a Sabbath. Um, they are part of what God has called you to do. So they are having a Sabbath today, and I'm going to be speaking. Um, before I jump straight into what I feel God has called me to do, there's another word that I really felt like I was supposed to share and I was supposed to make public. Um, recently, I've been reading through the book called Chasing Vines by Beth Moore. She talks about the metaphor of the vine and the vineyard that takes place in various forms throughout scripture and talks about how through the study of viticulture um, and growing vines, we can understand better what Jesus was saying to us when he compared us to a vine. Uh, another um, source that I looked at is called hobbyfarms.com. So in the book and at hobbyfarms.com, they talk about how you start a vineyard. The first thing you need to do out of the 10 things recommended the very first one is, what are your goals? So when you decide you're going to plant grapes, you have to decide why you're planting grapes. Are you going to make wine, juice, jelly? Are they just for snacking? Because based on what you want the end result to be, the variety changes. Because certain grapes don't work well as wines, and others really don't work well for snacking. So you have to determine the grape. Then you look at something that's called terroir which is really fancy in a French word. And according to dictionary.com, it is basically the environmental conditions, especially soil and climate, in which grapes are grown that give a wine its unique flavor and aroma. So you decide the variety of the grape, then you decide where you're going to grow it. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the noom, I <laughs> in the noom, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. A lot of us have heard this verse before. A lot of us um, have heard it a lot recently in media used for the anti-abortion argument. It's, it's something that's very familiar even to people who aren't saved and people who aren't Christians. So we kind of have turned it almost into a cliche or just a saying that we... Um, you know, used frequently in the church. It's not really meant something, but when you look at it closely and in regards to the viticulture um, analogy, the first thing God did was he knew you and chose you. God then consecrated you and then he appointed you. So wherever you are, whatever you're going through, especially here in 2020, um, I have... <laughs> Here in 2020 of all times, you are exactly where you are supposed to be because you were chosen first. I know I keep looking at the camera. There are people in the room here that I'm speaking to also, um, but I really felt like this was supposed to be put online. So I want to make sure that I'm emphasizing you were chosen first. You may make mistakes, but if you are actively seeking Jesus, you cannot completely destroy God's plan for your life because you came first. He knew his goals for you. He knew your particular harvest, your personality, your dreams, your heart, your call to ministry, and he picked you before he placed you. The only way to ruin the harvest is to not be rooted and founded in Christ, and that kind of plays into what 
I'm going to be speaking about today. But I have spoken with so many Christians, even in the last week, and I have dealt with this personally myself, too many people who are so concerned and stressed about missing God's call for their life or somehow ruining his plans for their life, especially here in 2020 where (laughs) everything offends everyone and everyone's really good at, like, judging you. But I want to encourage you, um, you are enough because God knew and chose you first. God is not sitting back with a checklist on a clipboard uh, waiting for you to meet or exceed certain expectations before he is going to decide whether or not he can consecrate and appoint you. He did it first. So again, I'm not entirely sure who needs to hear that or why I needed to make that live, but I wanted to encourage you that... um, Sorry, I'm, I'm fiddling with cords, trying to make sure I'm not going to be stepping on them. Okay, my sound man, a very attractive husband over there, is making sure that I'm okay. Um, yes, so I want to encourage you that God chose you first, and take heart whenever you're struggling or you feel concerned that God's top priority is you. Always you. When the situation is rough, when you are given a lot of responsibility and you're concerned about making the wrong decision, oh my word, okay, This plays so into this. Um, I am so stressed about making wrong choices. I am very much number one on the Enneagram. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically I want everything to be very black and white. I want to know what's right and I want to know what's wrong. And if it is right, then obviously there's a wrong answer. And I'm always afraid that I'm going to pick one that doesn't turn out exactly well. I have buyer's remorse when I get groceries. Did I get it for the best price? Is it the freshest produce? Did I get the right amount of nutritious ingredients for our meals? I have a hard time with this. And it comes down to almost ruining a lot of things for me because I'm so concerned with whether or not what I'm doing right now is right that I'm afraid I'm going to ruin everything following. And it does end up ruining everything following because I'm so stressed about that. And so this is something that really God spoke to me is that um, I'm top priority. I'm top priority. And even if whatever I do ruins something else, that's okay. That doesn't hinder any of the good things that God still has for me because um, he's already planned the harvest and whatever I walk through, he can use for good to turn into good fruit. So, okay. So again, that was not even my message. (laughs) So now we're going to get into that. Um, First, we're going to pray, though. I really want to pray because I am nervous. I'm stressed about this because what if I do it wrong? Okay. God, we thank you that you are here in this room. We have already prayed over this house. We've worshiped and we've invited you here and brought our minds into the correct posture to hear from you. So, God, we pray that you would come and speak through me. Um, I am prone already to say words wrong or to speak too quickly or to get too ahead of myself, God, and I need you to be the one to come and speak through me, because I do believe that this message that you've given me is important, and it's relevant, and it's something that's going to bring healing. So, Father, I pray that you would uh, continue to move in me, that it would not be my words, but yours speaking through me. You promised to do so in scripture, so I'm going to stand on faith in that and continue talking. In Jesus' name, we thank you for all you're doing here today. Amen. Okay, so I knew that I was going to be speaking, 
and I've known for a couple of weeks. I've been praying about it, and the thing that I heard most distinctly was from God, teach my gospel. Okay. Uh, when I think of gospel, especially as being a good church girl who is um, delivered by the pastor's wife, so practically born into church, I think of, you know, the ABCs and the Roman road, and, you know, if you admit that Jesus, or that you have sinned and confess Jesus is Lord and, you know, believe and pray, then you will be saved, and that's, I'm really good at fidgeting. I keep getting corrected. Okay. Oh, that's fun. Okay. Again, sound man keeping on me on top of things. Okay. Anyway, so when I think of gospel, that's usually what I think of, is when you pray, you get saved from your sins, and you get to go to heaven one day, uh, which really just didn't sit right with me, because as a growing and maturing Christian, I know that there's more to Christianity than just that. And then last week, my dad, Pastor Scott, preached on knowing Christ, and the only point of Christianity is to know Christ. He talked in Philippians 3 about Paul, where he lists his religious resume, essentially. Everything that he did according to the law, according to the rules put in place by the Pharisees. In fact, he was a Pharisee. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He lists all of those things and said, uh, he now counts it as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. For Jesus' sake, Paul has suffered the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish, which my dad told us uh, means it's not fit for anything except to be thrown to the dogs. He counts it as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. That is Philippians 3, verse 8. And then he talks... He referenced Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we emphasized last week that the whole point of Christianity, the entire goal, everything that we consider worth the cost is knowing Christ. And I just felt in my spirit that this week we needed to go a little bit deeper into that and talk about what knowing Christ means and what that looks like. So this is the only point of Christianity part two, knowing Christ and what does that result in. And uh, the first thing that came to my mind when I was thinking about, like, well, what does knowing Christ mean? What does it look like? It means action. And so Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, I just took a brief quote out of them. and says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. This is when Jesus is separating the goats from the sheep or the good fish from the bad fish when he is distinguishing those who will enter into his kingdom and those who will be left outside the doors. He talks about how the people who know him served. They clothed people who were naked. They fed people who were hungry. They visited people who were sick and in prison. And that was the distinguishing factor was, you know, I didn't know you, but 
yeah, a lot of people will, will, like they said, we did mighty things in your name. We prophesied. We cast out demons. We did mighty works. But still God did not know them. It comes down to the little things. So I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself. The first thing that I felt was produced out of knowing Christ is love. God is love, right? So I am going to be reading a lot of scripture today. Please bear with me because I feel like that's kind of the brunt of my message is bringing these passages into a new light, into something that's relevant and healing and going to be moving us forward. I did a lot of prayer and I didn't feel like any of this could be cut. Um, And again, I want God's words spoken through me and what better way than God's word. So we're going to go to John 13, verses 34 through 35. A lot of people in here have digital Bibles, so it's going to be going rather quickly, which is good because we're going to be bouncing all over. All right, John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. This is Jesus speaking. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Then we're going... Um, so yeah, that, that I'm trying to find ways of saying this because we live in 2020. Everyone is getting offended. Everyone is getting um, hurt feelings. And everybody wants to fight for something. Everybody's ready to take a stand. And I feel like this is where I stand when it comes to politics and voting, when it comes to racial injustice, when it comes to um, regarding COVID-19, the whole thing, this this has to be priority. The point of Christianity is knowing Christ, and knowing Christ leads to love. And it came from his mouth, came from Jesus' mouth directly, that we will be known as his disciples by our love. So, what does love look like? We're going to the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clinging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Could it be that the reason that people will be turned away at the gate of heaven, despite having prophesied and cast out demons and done mighty works, is because they will not have loved? I'm sorry, where was that that verse again? Which one? The... The ones that you just read. First Corinthians 13, okay. 1 through 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it says right here, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, we have been empowered by Jesus through the work of the Spirit to do mighty things, to prophesy and to cast out demons and to do mighty works, and those have a place. But if they're done without love... They, they may as well be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Guys, I have a two-year-old. I know, I know the sound of clanging cymbals and noisy gongs. We beat on every... He loves music, and he loves making music. So pretty much anything can be turned into a musical instrument. 
I know that sound. And while it's cute now, if you profess to be a Jesus follower, okay, I'm going on. <coughs> Another point, love is not love if it is passive. We as the church, especially here in Western culture, have kind of become dormant. It's like we've almost gone into hibernation. Uh, we stocked ourselves up with really good verses and really good theology, and we're nice and fat in all of our Christianese, and we're sleeping for the winter waiting for Jesus to come back. Mm. But that is not love. Love is not passive. First right. John 3, 16 through 18. First John 3, 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 4 says that love is perfected in us when we are actively loving one another. Yes. And that if we claim to love God but do not love our brothers and sisters, we are liars. Yes. Again, we like to talk about how we, we love people. God is love. We love people. We love pizza. We love football. But love isn't love unless it's active, unless it's doing something. And it's certainly not perfected love unless it is loving someone else you know somebody loves their football team because they are willing to spend a lot of money on the on the the fan merchandise they buy a jersey with the quarterback's name on it good grief have you seen the price on those things have you seen the price on a football jersey they are ridiculous you can tell somebody's love by where they put their money hmm, first and foremost um but also how they treat other people. I know a lot of people who are not generally loving people. They have a very close circle of people they love, and they will do anything for people within that circle. But they're not willing to do very much for anybody outside of that circle. And it kind of speaks a lot to, again, where they put their value mm -hmm. and where they place their love. Yes. Um, I just wanted to say that kind of reminds me, me and one of my friends recently were talking about dating advice. And one of the things she heard from her father was, you know if it's a good person if, uh, depending on how they treat the waiter, the waiter or the waitress. Mm -hmm. That's how you can tell if they're a good person. Okay, so, perfect. What does love look like in action then? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I want to go back to does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Um, if you are rejoicing at the wrongdoing, of the opposite political party, you are not loving. Mm -hmm. And if you cannot love your brother whom you have seen, you also cannot love God whom you have not seen. Mm -hmm. And this goes for our political candidates as well. Our political candidates do not have love mm -hmm. 
at the center of what they're doing. And we are called to stand out from that. We are in the world, but we are certainly not of the world. And if you are cheering for and supporting the abuse and the demoralization of the opposite political party, you are not loving. It says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's looking for the things to bear. It is looking for the things to believe and to hope and to endure. It looks for good in other people. As um, Mike Todd from Transformation Church, he says, it forgives 70 times 7 until you lose count. That's why Jesus said 70 times 7. Not because he thinks that there's an exact quantity that you need to forgive other people. Goodness, God's mercies are new every morning. Uh New, meaning the day before doesn't even count. Uh And if we are to love like Christ, that means every day we've got 70 times 7 to forgive somebody. And I don't care how grouchy or how mean of a person you are or how easily offended you get. I doubt you get to 490 times every day that you need to forgive just one person. Because that goes for every person. So the point of 70 times 7 is until you lose count. Until you lose count. That's what love does. Then this passage on love, I found this very interesting because we love reading those first few verses of 1 Corinthians, you know, 1 through 3 and then 4 through 7. And then at the very end, you know, these things abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And we like we think that's nice, a nice little cherry on top, but smack dab in the middle between those first verses and the very end is this very curious little verse that says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these three is love. Love brings about maturity. So maturity is another sign of a Christ follower. And the only way to mature an individual is to give them responsibility. The first responsibility of a Christ follower, a new commandment I give to you, Mm -hmm. that you should love one another. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 4, 1 through 5 And then I'll skip a little section and go to 11 through 16, but I'm going to read it all together because it's the same thought. I, Paul, therefore a prisoner for the Lord. So first of all, you need to notice that he's already in prison. Paul is already in prison, and he believes this so much that he is willing to be in prison and to not denounce the faith. So this kind of gives a um, certain level of authority to Paul and the things he has to say about Jesus. So, I, Paul, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Guys, we are confined to our homes. We can still go grocery shopping. We can order through Amazon. Amazon, you can get anything through Amazon. We, especially here in America, are not wanting. We're in quarantined, but we are not lacking anything. We have social media. We have Zoom calls. Paul is in prison, and he himself says, 
with all humility and gentleness. We are in the comforts of our own homes, raging against the world for the injustice of staying home. Sorry, that was a side note. That's not even here or there. Okay, there is one body and one spirit, the body being the church, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So again, a lot of scripture here. Let's break that down. Let's start with immaturity. If someone is immature, um, we can go so far as to say immature outside of the body, but also immature as a Christian. He calls them children and mentions that the signs of immaturity are being tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I know a lot of adults who don't think for themselves. They don't want to think for themselves. They want to be told what is right, what is wrong, who to fear, where to spend their money, who to elect, why they should elect those people. They are not thinking for themselves. Any decent, um, I'm trying to think of the word, someone who is familiar with logic and the arguments and the fallacies of logic would not be able to stand watching these debates. (laughs) But it's not about logic anymore. We have left reason far behind and now, unfortunately, our politicians are reflective of the people who vote for them. Um, And it says immaturity is someone who can be led to and fro by the waves, someone who can be afraid at every new news story of some sort of tragedy, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's riots, whether it's um, natural disasters, they are whipped to and fro. They have no steadiness. It's like Peter sinking in the waves when he's called out on the water. But maturity manifests itself as rather speaking the truth in love. Not ignoring the truth, not buttering it up and somehow kind of trying to slide the medicine in with the candy, you know, like we did when we were children. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into the head, which is Christ. And when the whole body that is held together by which it was equipped. And what are we equipped with? We are equipped with apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. 
And when all of them are functioning as one body, working properly in maturity, we grow and build ourselves up in love. So that's the first responsibility that leads to maturity. The second responsibility of a Christ follower can be found Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So maturity leads to discipleship. And discipleship comes from maturity. So why? I've been asking myself this a lot ever since I, I felt like God was saying, teach my gospel. Why, in 2020, especially here in the USA, would somebody want to be a Christian? Why? To one day eventually get to heaven? To know that their sins are forgiven and embrace this whole doctrine of don'ts that they have to follow? Uh, to be a part of a large group of people who are becoming more and more known for their righteous judgment of everyone else? I, I asked myself, what on earth is supposed to be the current appeal to a non-believer? And what should be the appeal to a non-believer? So, discipleship. I went to dictionary.com. Funny enough, discipleship is not on dictionary.com. It broke it up into two parts. The first one, disciple. The, fourth one, the first three definitions under disciple all have to do with being a follower of Jesus or somehow with scripture. But disciple, the fourth definition, was a person or a pupil who is adherent to the doctrines of another, a follower. And then it went on from disciple to discipling. And, gosh, guys, this really broke my heart because this definition is now considered obsolete by dictionary.com. It is not an active word that we use in the English language. Mm -hmm. It is something, I guess, pretty strictly held within the church, and it's not popular enough for anyone on dictionary.com to consider it still to be relevant. Obsolete, discipling, to teach or train. Disciple, discipling, discipleship, they all come from that word, inherently allows room for teaching and growth. It does not expect perfection. In fact, it expects to receive the imperfect. That's the goal of a disciple and a discipleship. Disciple, a person who is a disciple recognizes within themselves that they are not perfect, that they don't know it all. I've recently become a disciple of Google for baking. I have found these people online who share their information about baking tips and the science behind why baking works. And I am being discipled in baking. As we are, we are to be disciples of Christ, known by the love we have for one another. This means we allow for the imperfections found in ourselves and in the other members of the one body. Mm -hmm. We are called to make disciples of all nations. 
So that means we allow for the imperfections found in people who are not members of the one body. I'm sorry, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm having a hard time finding a loophole there. <laughs> people who are in the body and people who aren't in the body. We are supposed to be discipling and we ourselves are to be discipled. That means we allow room for imperfections in every single person, be they president, running for president, governor, teacher, coworker, pastor, brother, sister, When Jesus found Zacchaeus sitting in a tree, he was a tax collector and a thief. What did he do? For those invited of you, exactly. For those of you who don't know, uh, Jesus invited himself to dine with Zacchaeus, which at the at that time in that culture, eating with someone was the ultimate way of showing that you were equal with them. That's why it was such a big deal for Pharisees and Sadducees to see that Jesus was eating with tax collectors, not smoking a joint, not getting drunk. He was eating with tax collectors and sinners. When Jesus saw Matthew, a tax collector and a traitor, what did he do? He dined with him and made a disciple, made him one of the closest members of his party when a woman was brought to him in the act of adultery, what did he do? When he met the Samaritan woman at the well who had had five husbands and was now living with a man who wasn't her husband, what did he do? When Jesus saw Judas Iscariot, even non-Christians know that name. Judas has become synonymous with betrayer. Someone he knew would betray him, what did he do? Invited him in. Washed his feet our love, which results in the fruit of the Spirit, acts of service, which results in unity, and then leads to our maturity, our steadfastness, our firm and resolute belief in the truth. It should all be so alluring, so healing, so bright and salty that people cannot but want to come and enter into a relationship with the one who can sustain all of those things in them. Mm -hmm. Some people, and I pray lots of people, will enter into the one body as a result of our love and maturity and heart for discipleship, but some people will ignore us. Some people may imprison us. Some people would go so far as to betray us. But because love is being perfected in us and we are maturing, our maturity will produce steadfastness. And through our steadfastness and heart for people, we will have the grace. We will have the grace for imperfect people and to count whatever gain we had as loss in order to gain Christ and the grace to gain Christ and to be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes of our own from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection 
that we may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible we may attain to the resurrection of the dead. First John 16.33, I being Jesus, have said these things that you may have peace. Oh, that's sweet. I like having peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Huh? But take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's great. Jesus overcame the world. Jesus forgave in the middle of betrayal, in the middle of injustice, while the nails were still in his hand, the thorns were still dug into his brow, while he was suffocating on a cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we are called to go, as Beth Moore has put it, we have in the Western church, taken a message of go and turned it into a message of come. Come to our church. Come to our small group. Come to our Bible study. But Jesus said go. Jesus went. Mm -hmm. For God so loved the world, he invited everyone to a birthday party. No, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son to die on a cross to be the propitiation for our sins. I don't know about you. I have a son. I'd have a really hard time offering him up for anyone. Okay? I would take a bullet for him. Mm -hmm. But that is how much God loved us. We have taken this message of go and turned it into a message of come. We've become dormant, sleepy, lazy, and even some of us who want to go have become disheartened. If ever there was a time for the bride of Christ to rise up, it's now. First, we must know Christ because that is the absolute priority is walking in relationship with Christ. That means read the word, read the word, read the word. It means find people you can be discipled by who read the word and who know Christ and who are walking in the signs of love and maturity so that we may also walk in maturity. Then we will be empowered to love brought up into maturity and able to make disciples of all nations. The point of knowing Christ is everything. Through knowing Christ, we get our needs met, but other people get their needs met as well. It's to be a body. It's to rise up in unity. So, again, Jesus, he did all of that. But I want to I bring ourselves back to go into all the world and make disciples of those nations. I've kind of reworded a couple of those verses here. And I'm going to sum up with this before I pray. If you get nothing else, get this. Take heart. Yes. Take heart. All, 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 all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He has overcome the world that he's sending us out into. He has overcome the world and he will be with us yes. even to the end of the age. Yes. Even to the end of 2020. Even into the beginnings of the uncertainty of 2021, we don't know who's going to be president. We don't know what COVID-19 is going to be looking like, but he will be with us. Yes. Take heart. So, Father, 
I thank you that you have um, given us this word of encouragement despite um, all that we have to face, God. We know that, one, you've already done it and that you will be with us. You have not left us alone to see if we can follow. God, we thank you that you've come and that you are uh, teaching us, first, the love you have for us. By knowing you, we, we learn to know the love you have for us, and in turn, we learn to love our brothers and sisters, which perfects love in us. And then we become more and more mature, Father, growing up into the head that is you, forming one body, serving each other, and then we are able to go out and make disciples, Father, starting with love so that we would be alluring and drawing people to you because you have a heart for people. You have a heart for all people. God, I pray that you would develop that in us. Um, God, I pray that you would give us courage, a peace that surpasses all understanding, that actively guards our heart and minds as we walk into this the continuing of this crazy season, God. Help us to remember the authority that's been given to you, the overcoming you've done, and the fact that you're with us, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, we can do the same. God, I thank you that you were able to use someone as (laughs) nervous and as fidgety and as stressed out as me to bring your word, God. And if you could use me, God, I know me. You can use other people. I pray that you would remind them that they were chosen first, that you knew them before you even made them. I know a lot of people are so insecure about you seeing their imperfections and seeing the depths of their heart, Father, but you knew them first and still made them and still placed them. They are appointed and they are consecrated. God, I pray that you would remind people of that and help us to bring that about as well. All of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we believe in you and we believe in Jesus in you. We will see you next week.